Welcome to All Words and No Pictures, conversations with artists and the like, moderated by me, Sarah Carp Brown, an artist based in Southern California. In this episode, I talk to artist Allison Woolley. Recognized as a master artisan by the region of Tuscany, Allison carries forward the traditional methods and materials used by centuries of Italian artisans, both in her own work and in her teaching workshops. I'm Sarah Carp Brown, and I'm here with Allison Woolley. Good, uh, good evening, Allison. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, what time? It's morning for you, though. It's right? late morning for yeah. me. It's uh, evening in in Florence, Italy. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, so tell me a little bit. Let's start at the at the beginning um, about your background. I, you know, your your origins in Canada. Your your traditional art academic background there and then how sort of how you ended up where you are okay um well i uh, i grew up in uh north of toronto in canada and i went to the ontario college of art and design and uh, that was a uh that was my dream always to go there you know um uh and um I did four years degree there, and then um, they had a fifth year off-campus year in Florence, Italy, and uh, that's how I originally got to Florence. I I took that program. Okay, so so you were you had a student visa, and you came over, and and that you st- was still part of the same program, or you were studying with other people, or. Um, no, I was I was on the off-campus uh, Ontario College of Art uh, program at that time, and uh, now that's a really it's a really nice school, and uh, I know that they still do an off-campus program here, and uh, I'm sure it's very good. So I don't want to say anything uh, bad about it. We had a teacher at that time who was who was a little bit. Uh, he he let us he left us very much to our own devices, which happened to be a great thing for me at the time. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I ended up not really attending, and I found a job during that year that I was uh, studying in Florence. I I started working in an artisan workshop, which for me was a wonderful experience. Well, when you say artisan workshop. Describe a little bit what Florence was like at that time, and and what was appealing about that, and what they were specifically crafting in that workshop. Oh yeah, no, Florence at that time was wonderful because um, uh, nowadays the the artisan workshops are much diminished. There's fewer, but uh, at that time and now that was uh, late 1980s, early 1990s. There was. Uh, Every second doorway in the artisan quarter, which is the south side of the Arno, is known as the Ultra Arno. Uh, there was every second doorway seemed to be an artisan workshop, and they were working on really wonderful things—not just arts and crafts, but they were they were crafting beautiful, beautiful uh, sculptures and uh, woodwork, wrought iron. Uh, and decorative painting, and I got into one of these decorative painting workshops where they were doing beautiful reproduction furniture, 
you were absent then from your academic program, but that was okay because you were learning a whole other style or type of of art. Yeah, I know Mario, the teacher, he was a wonderful human being. He gave me a passing grade, uh, but I saw very little of him that year. <laughs> so um, you, describe it a little bit. How did you go about getting a job in an artisan <laughs> workshop? Uh, that was, that would, uh, actually looking back on it, I think it took a lot of nerve as, as a kid, basically. You know, it was, well, I was uh, 20. No, I was in my early 20s, yeah. And uh, I decided that I would like to work in one of these workshops, and I made some samples of what I thought was decorative painting. I thought uh, things that I imagined they might want to paint onto furniture or walls. And uh, I took these small samples around, and I basically knocked on doors in some of these workshops, and I, I asked them if... if I could work and uh, I was initially turned away from at least a couple of places but there one of them said oh you might try down the down the street they sometimes hire students and uh, that's how I got into the workshop that I ended up working in and uh, it was uh, it was it was really kind of a game of charades too because I didn't speak Italian very well and uh, I I made my, you know, I guess I had the few words to ask for work, and uh, they they told me, sure, come, come back tomorrow. I always remember that it was a, it was the series of come back tomorrow, <laughs> you know, like I would I would I went the first day to ask for work, and they said, okay, yeah, come back tomorrow. So of course I did, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and they then they had me, they actually threw me into the work. They they had me painting things. Um, quite fearlessly and they would always say at the end of the day they would say well I'll see you tomorrow we'll see you tomorrow domani and I I came I always came back and uh you know and then it got to I always tell the story that it came to the end of the I think it was the first week and I was wondering what this arrangement really was was is was this a job were they going to pay me and I remember that I had to look up the language I had to look up the words for uh will I be paid and I had to screw up my courage as well to actually mm. ask for that because <laughs> I was enjoying being there I loved it you know and uh and I so I did ask and they said yes and they paid me and I was I was overjoyed and because I thought you know here I can actually paint and and do what I enjoy and 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 be paid for it and uh, I don't remember how much it was but I don't think it was too bad and uh, it was of course under the table and uh, and so I continued with that for quite a while and uh, it was very funny enjoyable experience because they were they were really a lively uh group of artisans they they were always playing practical jokes on each other and uh huh. <laughs> it was a really funny environment yeah now you learned then through through this experience these traditional techniques and um and the other thing is that that you were using this for sort of practical application as opposed to uh quote unquote fine art the the track you had been on 
um, and it's and, yeah. that, and that dividing line isn't quite so stark. And I think you were saying, and it yes, no, that's that's what I like about uh, that's that kind of reversed my whole um, understanding because there's this long tradition; it's unbroken since the Renaissance of these artisan bottega uh, workshops where they learn the, the, the craft, the skill, and the art uh, of making things. And there, there's not really a distinction as there had been in my college coming through. Uh, we were divided into fine artists, experimental artists, commercial artists, and uh, there was there was not that that feeling of division, uh, as far as I could see, and I, and it's really nice to to um, to understand and to to master the craft, and then use it as a form of expression. And funnily enough, it seems strange to say, but coming up through an art school at that time, and I think it's true for a lot of art schools today still that. They don't value the craft at all. Hmm. Like you could certainly graduate with a, a, you know, from a painting program and not really know how to paint. It was almost looked down upon to be traditionally trained. The craft is is very valuable as opposed to being insignificant. Hmm. And. And in Florence, now, since speaking broadly, not just from back then, but even today, you feel uh, that you are included uh, in the artist community, in the artisan community? Is it all one? Is the community united, you mean? Mm, yeah. What's it like? I mean, are you, you're certainly respected as, a, as an artisan, but also as an art, how does that feel in Florence today? Um, yeah, there's, there's fewer artisans. I still have ties with artisans that I, I work together with in the year, in the past years. And, uh, there's a, a recognition. I have the certificate that I am a maestra artigiana, which is a recognition by the uh, city of Florence and the region of Tuscany. Wow. That's impressive. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I have it on my wall. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And yeah. and so do you stay in touch with these the original uh, artisans that with whom you worked when you first started out in Florence? I do. I I go to a yoga class with one of them actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, and then yeah. so through the years you you learned some of these traditional skills and then you started applying them and eventually started your own uh, bodega yeah, enterprise. Yes, yes, I did. Yes, I uh, I worked for for many years, probably fifteen, at least years uh, as a as a an art as a an apprentice and then as a I don't know uh, an artist on site because I was doing most of the 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 design and the decoration of the furniture. No, the new and, models for every year and so and that's on. A, and that's a distinct skill, too. I mean, being able to design as well as execute, so you showed the capacity to do both. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. That's yeah. true. 
And uh, we used to come out with new designs every year, uh, at least or twice a year for some of the furniture companies. So what I'd like to to do is then talk about how you um, developed this you, this niche market where you specifically focus on harpsichords. Can you talk a little bit about how that got started? Um, oh, yeah, and... the, I have the harpsichord niche. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there be I I love decorating harpsichords, and I started decorating harpsichords uh, a few uh, maybe twenty years ago. And uh, the first customer was a a client who specifically contacted the studio that I was working for, and he wanted a harpsichord decoration. And he had had the harpsichord made in in Paris by a well-known harpsichord maker in Paris, and. Uh, after doing that original commission, I met the owner of the harpsichord manufacturing uh, workshop in Paris, and I um I, I stayed in contact with him, and I worked I've worked for him quite a lot over the years. Yeah, no, uh, harpsichords are are this strange little niche. They a lot of people don't realize that they're still produced today. They think that they're just historical instruments that are in the museums. But there's a, a whole world of Baroque music enthusiasts who commission uh, new harpsichords, but they love them to be decorated to the nines, you know, completely uh, painted and gilded uh, with beautiful, beautiful decoration, just like the historical models. Wonderful. Now, you sometimes decorate these on site and sometimes in your in your bodega or your studio or your atelier. Yes. But, <laughs> so the size of this, the, how, how large, these are long, heavy, handcrafted wooden instruments and you will get them minus the, do you get them shipped to you with the, the keyboard or... What does it look like when you get uh, it? It depends. Yeah, it depends. Uh, usually without the keyboard, before the instrument has been strung. Mm -hmm. So I have the wooden case, and uh, the decoration usually goes on the outside of the wooden case. There's sometimes a stand as well, sometimes quite an elaborate stand. Uh, we've been commissioned before to have uh, to design and have the wood carve or carve a stand for um, an instrument or two we've had at least two that we commissioned the stand and then that gets gilded and uh, so the, the the outside of the instrument is um, painted the the lid usually the inside of the lid has a, uh, either a scene or a some floral or grotesque de decoration, depending on the style. And then the other place that often gets decorated on a harpsichord is the soundboard, which is the actual resonating board where the strings are strings are attached. So it gets decorated before the strings are put on. And you described this as uh, when we've talked before as being this very precious piece of wood, very painstakingly crafted, and then and then it's given to you, and you. Yes, it's it's a bit. It's just a bit nerve wracking. 
I remember I, I there's a harpsichord maker. He's uh, very well known, and he sells instruments in the uh, throughout the world to some some of the musical academies and uh, harpsichord players all over the world, from China to Australia to. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other places the harpsichords have gone. Anyway, this guy is uh, well known for his his sound quality. So the the soundboard is that's the heart of the instrument. That's where it's how that soundboard is crafted, and it's always finished by hand by the master harpsichord maker. And if it resonates just right, you get the beautiful quality of the sound and the volume as well and uh, I remember the first time I painted a soundboard for him um, I was uh, just a little bit tense (laughs) 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 because you know you can't make a mistake it's it's basically raw wood and it's not like you can uh, correct something or or paint uh, remove the paint once you put it on so um i remember he said to me also uh he had the same soundboard painter for i think 30 years and then she retired and he said i only tried one other harps uh, one other soundboard painter other than her and it was so bad i had to sand it off and start again, and then he, then he he said, "Go ahead, though." You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you were successful, obviously. It was so. okay. <laughs> yeah, it was okay in the end. Talk about the process where you take this raw wood, and mm-hmm. and the. Um, is it is the right word ancient the traditional methods you use where you create the materials from scratch that you use talk about that a little bit well on the on the harpsichord soundboard i use i generally use casein paint that's an casein is a natural binder i think traditionally they were done also with hot glue like a rabbit skin glue and pigment which i've done before as well but you gesso um, them first, is that right on the soundboard? Or not, not not the soundboard, no. Oh. The soundboard is is left as raw wood. It's got a light, light sh- coat of shellac. And uh, because you would you would change the resonating qualities oh. of it if you gessoed it. No, the that's the soundboard it does not get gesso. The outside of the of the harpsichord, the case and the lid and all the other parts that are decorated gets gesso. So that's a traditional gesso made with rabbit skin glue and whiting chalk. And and you make that yourself. You just just, just give yeah. a high level about how involved that is to create. Well, you have to uh, make the gesso by soaking rabbit skin glue in water, and then you heat that and you add the whiting to it to make. Uh, it's we call it gesso. We call the powder gesso and we call the liquid gesso but it's it's um it's uh, applied hot and you have to do several coats of that and then it gets thoroughly sanded and then uh, if you're going to gild you have to apply layers of what's called bowl which is uh 
a gilder's clay, again, a, prepared with a hot glue. And um, then the gilding is gold leaf, water gilding. And uh, then the hand painting is generally done with uh, either casein paint or rabbit skin glue and pigment. And some of these harpsichords have been for some very, you know, even people who aren't familiar with these harpsichord aficionados would know about Versailles and so forth. Yes, Talk yes. about some of these uh, big name-dropping projects that you've... <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I did two new harpsichords, original designs for the opera of Versailles. And uh, one was a French harpsichord and the other was an Italian. And uh, so In- they're... French and Italian in terms of the designs that were... The style and the designs, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, the actual instrument is a different, slightly different shape and size. And uh, the Italian is, is generally smaller and quite long and quite thin. And where... Uh, and so these are then in in place, being played at concerts in... Regularly at Versailles, Yes. Yes. Wonderful. The Opera of Versailles is a very happening place. You know, they have shows all the time and they're, I think they're doing really well. And you have, um, we talked about your capability in doing not only the execution, this fine craft work, but also planning the design. And, and, the in, and we had talked before about the inside of the lid is quite an unusual shape. Yeah, no, it's a specific design well quite often the designs are historically inspired and uh there's there's historical examples in there's musical instrument collections there's a beautiful one in edinburgh and there's uh the musical instruments museum in paris which has some gorgeous old harpsichords and i've been in to those both of those uh, the Edinburgh one several times, and I, I take note of the little uh, borders and details and decorative work. And now you um, have sort of taken this and translated it into some other um, applications. Uh, I believe you're calling it Dolce Sera. It's a, uh, a website with um, scarves. Yes, yes. I did uh, a collection. I am... Um, I was inspired by all these harpsichord decorations through the years, and uh, I became very intrigued by the world of of Baroque music. And it seems to be a world of, of beautiful locations and beautiful theaters, concerts, and the music quality is very fine. That kind of came into my uh, my understanding over the years because at first I was just painting what I had been asked to paint and then I started to understand the world of of the historical instruments and the baroque music I think it's because they um it's a little niche in our modern world where there's uh, a real appreciation of beauty and all the mm, they're very tuned into um, 
the pleasures of the senses, you know, the, the music for the sense of hearing, but also, for example, a, an evening concert or a, a, in a beautiful theater, and every detail is taken care of. And so these harpsichords are this little piece of that world where the craft is put to work to create this beautiful sensory experience, which would be a concert of beautiful music in, in, coming from a, a, a decorated instrument in a uh, wonderful Baroque theater in Venice, for example. You know, you can imagine the yes. the settings that go along with this whole <laughs> world. <laughs> and so, you know, I I, I just uh, I I also started to really like the harpsichord music, and and uh, it's quite something when you're in this in a, in the same room as these instruments that are handcrafted and really honed for their sound qualities. And so when you, when you hear a, a high-level musician playing on one of these beautifully crafted instruments in a small uh, room or a setting that is quite intimate, it's, it's really quite astounding how, how beautiful it is. So I have, yes, I have created this, this small series of designs that are inspired by the decoration of, of, of harpsichords. And I've, I've done them on, um, uh, uh, there were original paintings that I have printed on silk in, in Italy, uh, in Como, actually. You did quite a bit of, of sourcing to find the right uh, place to have these um, silk screen to have the the right silk the right workmanship hand on the hand rolled edge and so forth yes and so it's no small thing to say in i mean the fact that you're in italy this is available to you and close at hand so and i know i know yes. that's important to you also from a quality yes. standpoint yes yes because it took me a long time to to arrive at the at the quality that I was pleased with, with the the color reproduction and with the 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 level of the uh, because it's quite it's something uh, to translate the the design the, from the hand painted design onto the fabric. It's um, it takes quite a an experienced uh, team, and they had wonderful quality up in Como. And and speaking of that, the attention to quality and the and the you talked about the traditional processes that you use, there was a wonderful um story you told uh, that I've heard you, you tell about learning to do this work when you were starting and what was it something about a a, a watch or a clock? What was the Oh yeah, the my my gilding maestro Roberto He's he's always uh, saying that his maestro told him that when you are gilding, you must take off the wristwatch and put it aside. <laughs> Meaning you can't be trying to hurry up or trying to watch, you know, how much time it's taking. It takes the time that it takes to I love do a that. proper job. I love that. That's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. So I... 
in looking at it, let's talk about one of the scarves in particular of the of the. I know there. Are, I think there are four designs I've seen, or are there three? Talk to me about one in particular and take me into mm-hmm. the thinking behind it. Uh, I think it's the one that has the the fuzzy caterpillar and the bitter lemon. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. That's the soundboard scarf design. And that's based on the soundboard decoration. So as I was saying to you before, the um, the soundboard is that resonating heart of the instrument. It's the the board that um, the strings are attached to. So the tradition was, I mean, this comes from the Flemish uh, Golden Age when they would uh, produce harpsichords and they would uh, decorate quite often the only the soundboard quite lavishly and the outside of the instrument especially when it's closed might be might appear to be quite simple it could be like a black instrument with a gold stripe and then when it's opened it's almost like a music box that opens and there's this uh beautiful vision of flowers and fruit on the soundboard and uh the idea was meant to be it was a um uh, a feast for the senses not only the sense uh, the uh, uh, of hearing for music but the um visual of course so beautifully painted flowers but then they they would have uh, little reminders in there for the somewhat forgotten senses so they would have a bitter lemon or a radish for for the sense of taste and they would have a fuzzy caterpillar for the sense of touch uh you know so they were uh they're quite fanciful they're really they're um there there's some beautiful old examples but that that scarf is based on 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 the decoration of soundboards hmm sounds wonderful and some of the other designs are are based on specific harpsichords that you've done that you've painted yeah there's one that's um that's actually got four harpsichords pictured on it that are actually existing harpsichords quite famous ones you know there's one that's a really over-the-top crazy one that's got um sculptural figures emerging out of the sea uh carrying this harpsichord uh and there's a even a even a an angel a puto on a on a conch a a shell Mm -hmm. you know but you know it's really over-the-top baroque uh procession of sculptural figures emerging out of the sea carrying this musical instrument and uh then there's this other one that was that uh, we actually were commissioned to reproduce which is it's known as the coucher instrument in the metropolitan museum of art in new york and uh it's it's got a carved stand uh gilt carved wood with gold leaf and uh floral decoration on the outside and it was it was a lovely commission it was lovely lovely to do that instrument so uh it's pictured on the scarf 
And then there's another uh, couple that I just uh, really like the the design of the lines of them. And uh, so that that scarf is kind of based on the fascination of of the instruments on stage and the um, the idea of a concert and uh, the magic of that moment. Hmm. And now, I know that part of the other background leading you to uh, scarves as the particular application was that you have done some work for Ferragamo, which, and Ferragamo, for the record, is right around the corner from your um, studio, sort of. Um, Yes. and, And you worked with them to design a couple of things. Yes. Yes, I designed a T-shirt uh, and a scarf, uh-huh. and I uh, was yes, uh, and I was particularly taken with the idea of the scarf and the scarf design. Uh, and it was the design. That design was a um, a garden, a kind of a magical garden that contained all of. Uh, Salvatore Ferragamo's most famous iconic shoes over the years in topiary. They were carved in, in topiary bushes around this garden and I I just had so much fun doing that. I, I love these concepts like you were talking about the instrument coming out of it. I, that I guess it's fanciful, it's over the top, it's um, delightful in my view. <laughs> So, <laughs> I remember the yeah. one, the Ferragamo yeah. sandal with the sort of the stripes of color on this considerable sole. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. that's one of their most iconic shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, so it's very early. I, I, I want to say like 1930s or something. And there, there, I, I've of course forgotten all the dates on the shoes. But I remember when I was doing the project, I was thinking, my goodness, what an innovator he was. Yeah. Well, there's, and there's a museum in the Ferragamo building. There is. There is. Yeah. Yeah. I have been through it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so you're also, you're working with your, your daughter um, uh, mm-hmm. in your studio now. Uh, she's yes. involved in the Dolce Sera project as well as other work that you're doing. Yes, yes, she's coming in on all fronts. <laughs> she is uh she's still studying at the art college here in Florence and um she is um learning she's been working on a harpsichord. She participated a lot in the harpsichord that we recently decorated for the Opera of Lille in France. And uh she's also taking part in organizing courses and uh, just generally it's she's doing some of her own work as well she's just uh, she's just great well that's wonderful that you're that you're sort of uh, as a, a twist on the and and son it's uh, and daughter yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes yes yeah and yeah. and here she is sort of following in your footsteps as an apprentice in your uh, bottega as you yeah, started out. I guess yeah, I, I guess you could say that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm very pleased about it. I'm very pleased about it. You have to uh really be a jack of all trades nowadays though. You have to be a, a bit you can't just, you know 
I'm just thinking the way it was in Florence maybe a generation ago, they uh, they could be afford to be very specialized and, and a gilder would learn to be a gilder and he could do gilding his whole life. Whereas I think we have to be able to do a lot and uh, social media as well, for example. <laughs> Aha. Yeah. So, gilding, gilding and social media. (laughs) (laughs) An unlikely combination, but yeah. 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 And, and so that, and I want to talk to you on another occasion about some of the classes and workshops you do, but maybe you could talk about it a little bit. I'll put, put, post links to the Dolce Sera website where it's possible to purchase, uh, or it will be possible to purchase these scarves in this series. Yes. We Um, have not quite launched them yet. Yeah. Okay. As we speak, yeah. yeah. Um, but but you also offer, um, and, and you have students come from, I know, all over the world to learn yeah. some of these traditional techniques. Maybe you can talk a little bit about about that. Yes. Uh, I like to act as a bridge, really, because um, there's a lot of artisan knowledge and um, very skilled artisans in Florence and I like to offer classes uh, with all the techniques that, um, well, I teach, but I also have teachers come in. Uh, there's uh, gilding, restoration of paintings, uh, fresco techniques, um, trompe l'oeil techniques, all the uh, very uh, traditional techniques for decorative painting and gilding and uh the teachers are just great really giving really skilled and uh expert at conveying what they know and florence is great for that you know it's just a wealth of 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 these things and of course there's the experience of being in florence and and I know that some yeah. of your students are, are decorative painters themselves or they're, or they're conservators or some of the people I've been taking courses yeah. with you run, in, run into. And they're from Japan and uh, Russia and the United States. And where can you yep. fill in gaps? What else? Where else have people come from? To... Yeah, definitely all those places. Um, also, Germany, Austria, all the European countries, uh, Africa. Africa, hmm. Egypt, mm-hmm. yeah, um, South America, and uh, ooh, a lot of people from the United States, of course, mm-hmm. Canada, and, and so the the speaking Australia. of having someone that's done this, you you come in and you stay in Florence, which is a wonderful experience, and then you every day come into your studio and and work with the under the direction of either you or and or uh, say Roberto if it's gilding or one of your other teachers and yeah. um, and then do you also offer um, other types of t- did you also offer tours of the Alterno or I'm misremembering um, no we we used to do artisan tours we're not really doing those anymore mm-hmm. um, there are some good guides that do those and we can with people in touch with with guides but uh we do retreats sometimes where we will go um either to the 
Villa Palmerino, which is just on the outskirts of Florence. Beautiful mm-hmm. place. Um, and it's got a, a, a tradition of, of being owned by artists. They have documents that go back to the 1400s that the, the, the place was owned by artists who worked for the court of the Medici. And uh, and then through the years, I mean, they they've had some. Uh, 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 there was a famous author who who owned it in the 1800s, and she had a a lot of artists and poets and other writers coming through. So it's it's got a, a art coming out of the walls, basically. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's a beautiful beautiful place, and uh, it's run now as as a retreat. As a as a place for artists, so we uh, we'll do a summer course there quite often, and when there's accommodation on site, uh, we've done retreats in Marrakesh in Morocco. We've done now, one so far. We're going to do another in 2020. Now I have a question about that. It seems like everybody mm-hmm. is going to Morocco lately. What? Um, where specifically uh, were you in Morocco? And tell me what the draw was and what that was like. Well, that's Melanie Royals. Melanie Royals has opened. Uh, Mel- Melanie Royals is um, the owner of Royal Design Stencils in San Diego, California, and I know her personally. We've done uh, courses together, uh, groups together in Italy in the past, and she, um, a couple of years ago now, bought a Riyadh in Marrakesh and completely renovated it and uh, set it up as, a, as an artist's retreat. So there's accommodation and a studio on site, and you're very well taken care of. She has beautiful staff there, and uh, it's just a really nice experience for artists because it's so visually stimulating down there. Wow, it's intriguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before I stop recording, though, let's say, um, let me say, that um, I, I've enjoyed hearing all about what's new and what you, you know, your background and, and how you started. And um, I hope to talk to you again about other topics, maybe more specifically about Florence and um, more mm-hmm. about some of the traditional uh, themes and motifs. And, um, but thank you. It's been wonderful. Oh, thank you, Sarah. You can find information on Allison's work and workshops at Florence Art. Net. And you can see her new collection of silk scarves at dolcesera.com. That's D-O-L-C-E-S-E-R-A dot com. You've been listening to All Words and No Pictures. This is Sarah Carp Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>